We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. What we get to do this morning is something really exciting that I hope all of you are just as excited about as I am. We get to, at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 1, we get to look at something called a genealogy. And it's super exciting. I'm trying to muster up as much energy as I can for that. Uh, genealogy is like going through your family tree, right? It's your 23andMe, it's your Ancestry.com, it's that kind of stuff. And we get that about Jesus. But I want us to see, even though it sounds like just a list of names that I won't be able to pronounce this morning, there's something much deeper going on. And, and the author of this, Matthew, was really conveying a really significant and important message that his original audience, Jewish believers in Jesus, would have really perked up to. And so we have to do a little extra work because we're in a different time, a different space, a different culture, different language, different history. But I think if we dig a little deeper, we'll be able to find something that's really significant for us even today as well. And so turn to Matthew 1 with me. I'm gonna read the first 17 verses and then we'll pray. Matthew 1, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiudad. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Akim. Akim fathered Iliad. Iliad fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Matan. Mathan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Christ. So all generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. This is God's word. Father, we ask that you would help us to have ears to hear, minds to understand, eyes to see. God, that you would help us to not just learn something of interest this morning, but God, to see you more clearly, to be transformed by you, to be filled by the presence of your spirit, to know and experience the love of our Father and to become more like Jesus. 
God, would you protect us from anything that is not of you and your word, God? Guard my mouth from that and our ears. But God, would you speak to us this morning what you want us to hear? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So let's see if I can do a little drawing here for you guys. I wanna tell you a story, but it's easier to do with a little visual. So in the 1930s about, there was a Canadian man, we'll call him Mr. Brown right now. And so he lives up here in Canada. See, it's like almost off the screen because he's up north. And he ends up having a child with a woman. And the problem was this woman was not his wife. And so Mr. Brown, who drove a a box truck, probably delivering milk, and in Canada, that milk was probably delivered in bags or something, I don't know. Um, But those little box trucks that would, you know, drive around and make deliveries. And so he had a great idea to hide this from his wife. He convinced this woman that he could have a great life for her in the U.S. And so he smuggled her and the baby across the Canadian border into a little place called Ohio. So it's like the epitome of the milkman's your dad kind of story, right? And so smuggles them across there, but then he just leaves them there and deserts them. Uh, And so this boy grows up without a father. He had the last name Brown, but now because his dad's not around, he took on his mother's last name, Rasmussen. And at the same time, there was a family who was coming over from Syria, Lebanon. Their paperwork said that they were Syrian refugees, but actually they were from Lebanon, which is right next door to Syria, uh, but they couldn't really communicate very well in English when they came over. And so there's a Lebanese family that also moved to Ohio, and they each had children as well. And so this Lebanese girl grew up, and this Canadian boy grew up, and they fell in love, and they had a couple kids together uh, before the man who came from Milkman Brown passed away uh, in a tragic accident. And so uh, these two young, sorry, three young children were now also being raised without a dad. And so the mom remarried a Polish man with the last name Preby. And so now they took on their stepdad's last name. And while all this is happening, down here in a place called Oklahoma, let's use a different color there. In Oklahoma, there is a grandson of Chief Shoe Boots who grew up and fell in love with a fiery redhead Irish woman. And they were both drunks. And they had eight kids together. And they moved their family over to Phoenix. And so did the Polish-Lebanese family. And while they were there at Palo Verde High School, two of them met and they fell in love. And when the young man from Ohio graduated high school, he enlisted in the Air Force when he was still 17, fudged on his papers a little bit about his age, uh, and took off and he brought the young woman from Oklahoma with him and they moved to Las Vegas where he was stationed in the Air Force base. And they had two kids there. And then when they found that their relationship wasn't really working, they thought maybe let's move back to Phoenix. 
And then they had two more kids, of which I am one, before they finally had kids with other people and decided they should probably have a divorce too. Uh, And so then there were six kids. This is my sort of genealogy, and it's messy, and it's weird, and it's really hard to explain. And when I was like a kid, and I was constantly trying to introduce different half-siblings, step-siblings to my friends, I would have to literally draw out a family tree. Uh, But we filled in some of that backstory with the help of Ancestry.com and 23andMe, actually, uh, both sides of my, my parents are doing that. But there's some key people in that genealogy. There's some key people in my ancestry there. I could have been Chris Brown. That would have been my original name. And I'm thankful that's not my name. Uh, Or I could have been Rasmussen. And I had a principal when I was in junior high, Mr. Rasmussen. And I did not like him. And so I would pray that I was not related to him somehow. Uh, But then I, I ended up with the name Freebie. And so there's some key people in that story. There's also the family that came from Lebanon. That has been a key part of my upbringing and a key part of the stories I was told, uh, even though I don't know how to speak any of the language, but I do love the food because I just love food in general. So I love Lebanese food too. Uh, but I was a key part of the stories we'd hear growing up from my aunt. And then there's also Chief Shoe Boots. My mom's last name was Shoemaker, which came out of that. Uh, and so she would always tell us, you can, you can get like free college because you're part native and all this stuff. And I was like, I'm the whitest dude in the world. I don't believe you. And then we got the answer she back and I was like, I probably should have tried that. So <laughs> missed out. But there's some key people. There's also some scandal involved, right? Uh, and there's, there's some things that like, if this person wasn't part of that story, it would have been a completely different story. And that's kind of what we find in the genealogy here with Jesus. There's some names listed in here that people would have perked up right away, be like, I know that name, I know that name. Wow, that person, really, right? And so this is an important genealogy. This is an important family ancestry line right here. So pay attention. But then there would have been some other names dropped that would have said scandal. Like, wow, really? Like, this is, oh, man. Oh, I, I forgot that, or no one taught me that this person was. Just even the, the sheer fact of mentioning women in this genealogy, in this day and age, it wouldn't have been done. So there's something intentional happening here. But not only are they women who are mentioned, they're all women who are not Israelite women. And so if you're trying to tell a story about, hey, this is the genealogy, the family ancestry, the, the lineage of the one who's supposed to be the rightful king to Israel, you would not have included those names. They were people who who weren't part of Israel's ancestry originally. And they were people who often had some type of sexual scandal associated with them. In fact, one of them would have reminded them about the failure of their best king, when it mentions Uriah the Hittite, his wife, Bathsheba, remember her? doesn't say her name. That King David had a child with the Hittite's wife. And so, man, our, even our best king, like, hey, thanks for reminding us of that, that he failed miserably too, because what did he do after he slept with someone else's wife? He had that dude killed so that people wouldn't find out. So this is not the best way to set up, hey, 
Attention, everybody. The greatest king is about to come. And yet, this is how Matthew chooses to do it. And he kind of buries the lead at the beginning. Like at the very beginning, he goes, I'm going to list off like 40-something names, but pay attention to these two. This is the account of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham, right? And why are those significant? Son of Abraham would have immediately helped people remember, like, we're people of God's promise. God called Abraham and he said, I will make you a father of many nations and I will bless you so that you could be a blessing to others. And God was, he promised Abraham to give him land, to give him community, and to give him all kinds of blessings. And he promised, most importantly, that he would be his God and that his people would be God's people. He promised to be with him, right? And there is this promise that he was gonna lead them into a land where they would flourish and they would thrive. And what's the problem with that? At the time that Matthew's hearers are reading this or hearing this, they're in the midst of Roman control. And they've had a deep history of this, not just with Rome. Before Rome, it was Babylon and Persia and Assyria and all kinds of other nations that had control over them. Way back in their history, they were, they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And so they're hearing this and they're reminded God's not done with his promise. He hasn't given up on it. This is the son of Abraham. This promise continues. The seed of that promise still lives strong. And then son of David. And why is that significant? David was, although a failure, the best king Israel ever had. He was called a man after God's own heart. And David was just a little preview, a foretaste, a, a glimpse of a better king to come. And in fact, in 2 Samuel, we're told that God promises he will establish his kingdom through the seed of David. And this kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and there will never be an end to it. And that the king that he puts on that throne will never be dethroned from it. And so when you're talking to a people who are living in captivity still, they're living under the thumb of an oppressive rule, Rome, and you're reminding them about this promise. God's not done with his promise, and he is establishing a kingdom. So pay attention. This is the, the good news that they were hearing in that. And then they start getting the scandal, right? Then they're reminded David wasn't perfect. Then they're reminded of, of all these problems that happened in their ancestry and in their lineage. And you're, you're introduced with this tension here because he's about to introduce the birth of Jesus. And what he's saying is this Jesus has come through the best of the best and also through the worst of our history. This Jesus is the seed of the promise to Abraham and he is the one to establish the kingdom forever through David. But he also is attached to scandal and the nations that you hated. Why? Because God has always been about bringing those nations in, hasn't he? And what, what Matthew, I think, is doing in this genealogy, in this family tree, is he's reminding people God has actually been at work through all of it. And God has been with us just as he promised he would be 
through all of it. And God is taking not just the best of our best, but even our mess. And he's using that and he's working something according to his plan and his purposes and his promises. He does not give up. And he is faithful to his promise. It is coming true. So even in the hard things, even in the messy things, even in the things that they wish they could have erased, he's saying, no, 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 God is here for all of it. And he's actually bringing it all together. And this would have been scandalous, but also reassuring. Because how many of those people do you think were living in their own scandal? And now listen, we're, we're Phoenicians, not Israelites. We're in the US in 2023, right? And so we might hear this and go like, okay, I, great. That's great how they would have heard that, but that's not our history. But listen, we need to hear that same thing that while we're sitting here in the midst of our own mess, God is still present. Now, in the same way that God was working to bring restoration and healing to that mess for them, that's what he wants to do for us too. What I am not saying is that God's perfectly comfortable in your mess. But what I am saying is that God has not turned his back on us and that God is pursuing us the same way he has always pursued people throughout history. And he is calling us to come to him mess and all and to lay it down before him and to trust that he will still work his good plan and fulfill his promises through it. And as we do that, as as Matthew was calling people to do that through this story, what we'll see is he continues to show them that Jesus is king over all that. That doesn't just mean Jesus will take care of it for you. It means submit yourself now to this king and then you will see restoration come to that mess. He begins this story, his book, his account of the gospel with a genealogy and he ends it with the great commission. Do you know what I'm talking about? When he says, he writes down Jesus's words that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, join me in my work. Go and make disciples. Immerse them into the identity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And remember, I am with you through it all. He begins with showing us this is who this Jesus is and then Jesus' words reminding us exactly who he is at the end and then inviting us into the great plan that God has, what he's at work doing in this world. That's why this genealogy matters. But there's more. There's the names that, man, this would have been like some great names mentioned here, right? David, Solomon, Abraham, Jacob, like all these names, and then also scandal, right? All these terrible things, but then also this reassurance of like, hey, if, if Tamar was mentioned, who was like a temple prostitute, right? Rahab mentioned, who's a prostitute. Like if, if you have all these names mentioned, you have Mary mentioned at the end, right? If, if you have all these names mentioned and they're brought into this great lineage, then there's hope for us too. Like I may seem and feel insignificant and yet God sees me and he wants me to be part of his story. That's incredible. And then there's something really interesting that happens. 
So there's all those names and there's, there's like the great history there. But then we get to verse 17 and this is kind of where I want to just like, I want us to stop and reflect on verse 17 for a moment. Because as I was reading it this week, I got to it and I was like, you know, repetition is not just haphazard. It's not on accident. Repetition is intentional, right? It's on purpose. And when you get to verse 17 and he says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Christ, how many? 14 generations. When I read that, I was like, wait, what is he trying to say? <laughs> What's the significance of 14? Why, why does that matter? And what's fascinating about this is if you start to really try to geek out on it and, and explain the numbers, you'll actually find some problems with it mathematically. Like all the ones mentioned actually in that last section from Babylon until Christ, I only count 13. What's up with that? Also, there's names missing in this order. Like there was not literally 14 generations from Abraham to David, and then 14 generations from David to the exile. And like there's, there's some people he left out of that in order to get that number, and then he doesn't even get the number right on the last time. And so that's one of those, like we could start going down that rabbit hole and going like, okay, so what's happening here? Like, can we really trust this? And again, we have to step back out of our context, out of our like, scientific, industrial revolutionary mindset in the West and remember how numbers were seen in the ancient Near Eastern world. The ancient numerology was actually for painting a picture. It's, it's not that they weren't mathematical, but it's that they, they saw the significance in numbers differently than we did. And that for Matthew actually to intentionally leave out some names in order to get to a number He's trying to tell a story. And so what is the story he's trying to tell? By the way, the, the last bit that's like 13 from the exile to Jesus, uh, there was one king left off of there and his name is very similar to one of the other names. And some theologians, scholars believe it's possible that in the translations later, they accidentally like amalgamize those two names together. So that could explain why there's 13 instead of 14 there. Uh, but his name is Jeconiah. He should have been on that list. So there's that. But really the point is this, that Matthew's trying to tell us a story. So what's with 14? And so I've been asking that question. And we, unfortunately, this is harder for us, right? Because we want to just be able to read the scripture and we want like, the stuff to pop out at us. And we want the spirit sometimes, like if we don't understand, like spirit, open up our minds and just like speak to us, right? But here's the thing. God is always called, yes, the spirit speaks to us. Yes, the spirit works through us. God has always called humans to partner with him in his work. And that includes our understanding of his word. So studying has to be a part of that. And what I wanna just kind of take a moment to pause from this sermon and remind us all right now is like, don't just leave that job up to other people to do it for you, okay? Now there are some people who do a way better job and, and know like the other languages way better than I do and I'm grateful for that I can learn from. 
But if I just only ever take the word of somebody else who's the expert, and I'm never partnering with the spirit to actually dive into understanding the culture and the language and the structure of the word and why it was written that way and to whom and for what purpose, then I'm not partnering with God to know him more. Relationships take work, don't they? I have to do work to understand where my wife's coming from sometimes. And she has to do the same with me because that's how we get to know each other. And that's how we have a deeper understanding and love and a better relationship. In the same way, I'm encouraging you to do some of that work. And so here's some of the work I had to do this week is understanding uh, numerology and understanding language and understanding how these numbers would have told a story, okay? And so in order to do that, diving into the culture, we find a few things. First, one of the things I found is that culture, that time period would have understood generations to last a certain length of time, typically 35 years. So I'm a millennial. So some of you in here are maybe Gen Z, maybe uh, boomers, I don't know, what, what are, what are some other generations around this time? I don't even know them all. Yeah, Gen X. So I think I'm in one of the worst generations, millennials, but that's okay. Um, I'll, I'll rep it still, I'll rep it. And we, we typically talk about generations in our day and age as like the span of about 20 years, about two decades time of when people are born. But we'll, we'll fudge that sometimes based off of significant events, Right? And so we can, we can kind of like determine this generation is really marked by, like my generation is really marked by the 90s and growing up during that time. And by like when we had, we could still, many of us remember having pagers, not cell phones, right? And we could remember drinking from the water hose and things like that. But this culture that we're reading from, they would have had the specific 35 years set. So if you take 35 years and there's 14 generations and you multiply that 14 times 35, you guys did not know we're doing math today, did you? But you get a number, 490. Okay, whatever. Why is that significant? If we were this culture hearing this, we would have been reminded of a book that they knew very well, a book of Daniel, specifically in chapter 9. And in chapter 9 of Daniel, God is speaking about when are you going to be released from captivity? And he gives them a number, 490. He actually says it's seven times 70 weeks. And, but what, what most scholars believe and will say is that that number is actually relating to years. And so you multiply seven times 70, you get 490. So it's the same number, which... Okay, that corresponds to Matthew. That's cool. That's great. That's fun little interesting trivia fact. But is that really all this is? No. Uh, also, letters in the ancient Hebrew language would have had numbers ascribed to them. And so David would have been spelled here. Let me draw this up here again. Sorry, guys. We're really going to school here. David would have been using, these are English letters for him. It would have been spelled like this, the same uh, was, is used for V or W in the Hebrew language, okay? And so 
No, they, they don't include the vowels, just the consonants. And these are ascribed numbers to them. And so this one would have had the number six, this one four, this one four. If you add that up, what do you get? 14. So also possible that Matthew, as he's writing this out, is really driving home, this is the son of David. 14 generations. He really wants us to know this is the son of David. Why? Because they believe the Messiah, the one who would come and rescue them as promised, would come from the line of David because that's what God said in 2 Samuel. Okay? So that's another one. But how do I erase this? That's not it. That's not the eraser. There we go. But there's something more. So if we have 14 generations, come on, three times, who's going to do the math? What does that equal? Good job. I had to use a calculator earlier this week. 42. Why does that matter? 42 is like saying six weeks, six times seven, right? Equals 42. Where in the world do these numbers, six and seven, become significant in the, the world of the Bible, in the biblical story? A creation, right? What happens at creation? On the sixth day, God creates humans, and he makes them in his image to be his representatives and his partners to care for. He gives them authority, kingship, over his created world, right? And on the seventh day, what does he do? He rests. He settles in with them. And he invites them into that rest also. All throughout the biblical narrative with the Hebrew culture, with the ancient Near Eastern world, they would often refer back to this number seven as being an invitation into God's rest. And six was like, if you got to six, you're anticipating. You see what I'm saying? If this has been 42 up till this point, this has been uh, like six weeks, basically, up till this point of Jesus coming, what the author is saying, what Matthew is saying here, is that now the seventh day has come. Why does that matter? Listen, this is a whole story, this genealogy of humans and their ruling throughout Israel, right? This is a whole story of humans being in place of king. He lists so many kings in this. And even the best of them failing. That six-day humankind was made to be God's representatives and to rule, and we failed at it. Why? Because we stepped out of what God chose for us to do in ruling alongside with him in partnership. And we said, no, 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 we got this. We could do this on our own, right? And we failed. And this whole genealogy is retelling that narrative of humans supposed to be ruling in God's image and falling short at it. But the seventh day has come. God is here. And he is bringing the fullness of rest that you and I have been longing for. And he's inviting us into it so that we could actually rest with him. And when that happens, what he's doing is he not only is saying, okay, just come and, and relax and chill and rest. Like that's what I picture rest, right? 
So we think peace is just quiet, like our kids not talking when we don't want them to. And, and we think rest is just like vegging and watching Netflix, right? But that's not the picture that God has for us. What rest is, is settling into the goodness of God's work. And not only just enjoying it, but trusting him in it. And then saying in that rest, I can now partner with you to continue the work that you've started. The first day the humans were were created, they got to the first full day. They had seventh day rest, right? But they were created for work, to have dominion and rule and authority and to care for and tend to the garden. So Jesus coming is not just saying, okay, you no longer have to try. It's not that kind of rest. No, no. What it is, is you don't have to earn it. You can enter into and rest in the fact that Jesus has done it all for you now. That's why Matthew 28, the end of his book matters. Now go and make disciples, right? Now you are commissioned with him. Now enter into the work with him. Now share the authority with him. That rest, what it does, not only brings us rest, but it also restores us for the work we were intended to. The rest Jesus brings, that seventh day rest, restores us into the humanity we were supposed to be all along. And so what Jesus does is he comes and not just overthrows Rome like they thought he would, right? And he doesn't just come and go, hey, let me just make everything comfy for you now. I got this, don't worry. What he does is he comes and he shows us exactly what humanity is supposed to be. He is truly human as he partners with God intimately and as he lives faithfully to that role. And in the same way now, he invites us to enter into that with him. And so 17 verses here of boring names and numbers and all this stuff, what Matthew's trying to do is remind us a story. God has given a promise through Abraham, and he said he will establish a kingdom through David. And ultimately what he's doing through all of that is he is inviting us into the rest and the shared work with the God of the universe. And so there's an invitation now. Do you want to enter into that with him? In the midst of a crazy, busy Christmas season, and in the midst of all kinds of junk that we all have going on in our lives, in the midst of relationships that are broken and falling apart, in the midst of bills that we're struggling to pay in, in the midst of a world that seems crazy. Will we enter into the rest Jesus is inviting us into? To trust that he has authority over all of it. And if we truly trust that he has authority over all of it, would we actually enter into that brokenness the same way he has with his authority and get to work bringing good news? Amen? So that's Advent, and that's Christmas. It's less presence under a tree, and it's more of an invitation into a kingdom. Would you guys pray with me?